I'm Grant Holofont, and this is We Can Be. Technology and information have gotten a well-deserved bad rap recently. You've all heard about Facebook and Cambridge Analytica. And what you've learned is that the machine learning mechanisms around us, the massive information that we have, is in the select hands of a few. And the concentration of power that it creates is in fact creating even more inequitable of a society. What I want to do is use some technology and show what could happen if we took information, that new thing that is the currency of our life now, and if we turned it towards the populace, towards the citizen, toward the community, and provided power to those who actually deserve power. Today we are speaking with Carnegie Mellon University's Ilan Norbosch and Rakib Bey, Executive Director of Black Urban Gardeners and Farmers of Pittsburgh. In this episode, we are focusing on one of the great anomalies of modern American society, the disconnect that exists between the enormous intellectual capital, innovation dynamics, and wealth creation associated with its leading research universities, and the persistent challenges and worsening inequality confronting the communities and country in which those centers of innovation reside. For the past several years, we've been in discussion with Carnegie Mellon University and a cohort of experienced community leaders about making this concept of a better way a new reality. That's why Carnegie Mellon University has launched the Center for Shared Prosperity, funded initially by the Heinz Endowments with the largest single grant in our history, and guided by a committee of trusted regional leaders. The idea is that what the Center of Shared Prosperity will accomplish will benefit not only the communities surrounding Carnegie Mellon, but also other universities and their communities across the country who may use it as a guide for systemic change. Illa is the KNL Gates Professor of Ethics and Computational Technologies at the Robotics Institute at Carnegie Mellon, where he heads the Community Robotics, Education, and Technology Empowerment Lab, better known as the Create Lab. He is the author of Robot Futures and co-author of AI and Humanity, both from the MIT Press. In addition to heading Black Urban Gardeners and Farmers of Pittsburgh, Rakib also leads Mama Africa's Green Scouts, a grassroots organization that works with inner-city youth to encourage awareness of green education, environmental sustainability, and social justice. She is also, as she says, the mother of six phenomenal children. Ellen Rakib, welcome to We Can Be. Thank you for having us. Thank you. I do want to start by just level setting a little bit about the background each of you brings to this work. Ella, let me start with you. Just give us a little bit of background about who you are and what you're doing. The work that I've been doing for about 27 years in Pittsburgh really centers on the question of what it means for engineers and other kinds of innovators to be ethical in the community. What does it mean for us to invent and innovate in ways that are pro-social? They cause positive social change and and increase the chance of people having a livelihood that they desire and wish for. And so almost everything we do is around the question of what are the challenges that society faces and then how do we use technology as a guiding tool to overcome those challenges by empowering people. And it really is about putting people in the center of that because it's when we work with a community, for instance, and give them air quality monitors that they make a better case to the EPA that causes a shutdown or causes the right kind of fines to happen so we have cleaner air to breathe. So that's what we've been doing for 25 years at the CREATE Lab, thanks to local foundations who see power in connecting innovation at the university 
to real community need in multi-year efforts that really take patience and perseverance to pay off. Rakib, you founded Black Urban Gardeners in 2014 and have dedicated yourself to this work since. Can you tell us a little bit about what you do at Black Urban Gardeners and why it's important to you? So I am the founder and executive director. Before we started Bugs Pittsburgh, as people call us, I already had a background in activism in my community in the Lower Hill District for fair housing or anti-gentrification work. So we collectively came together actually in June of 2015. It was 12 of us. And we started with Homewood because Homewood is a food apartheid area. There hasn't been a grocery store since 1995. Most people are familiar with the term food desert. However, we're intentional with our words because food apartheid describes a black and brown neighborhood that are already suffering from tremendous issues and various issues such as crime, low income, lack of funding for schools, even public school officials. So that's why we use the term food apartheid. So we set out some goals. We wanted a farmer's market for Homewood, eventually a grocery store and a farm. And so a year after we formed, we started a farmer's market in Homewood. In 2018, we formed the Homewood Food Access Working Group. And also, we acquired a farm from the city of Pittsburgh's Adopt-A-Lot process. We have a 31,000-square-foot farm, and we're a teaching farm as well. We have been working closely with partners to develop a community cooperative grocery store in Homewood, but out outside in affluence, so the community residents of Homewood will be able to have autonomy, not just membership, but ownership of the grocery store as well. The types of challenges, Rakib, that you're describing are exactly, to Illa's earlier point, the types of challenges that, by nature, large research universities tend not to focus on because it's a completely different world and there's a disconnect there. Illa, you're taking on this initiative that is designed to bridge the gap between these worlds, a thing called the Center for Shared Prosperity. Tell us a little bit about, in your own words, what this is about and why it is significant, uh, not just in Pittsburgh, but nationally. I think we face a crisis of identity to what universities mean, what they're for, why do they exist in society? People can go to uh, many schools and many online sessions where they can learn up skills, skills that help them establish a business in a local community. So what's the university for? And I think universities are starting to have this same concern, that their place in society is, is in a way challenged by the, the way technology has marched forward, but also by the way universities have added to disparity to exacerbation of inequity in society. Because universities create knowledge, but a lot of that knowledge ends up in corporate America. Universities create innovation, but a lot of the innovation ends up licensed to big companies that make lots of money with it. And that knowledge, that innovation, that information all ends up often concentrating power and concentrating capital in the hands of a few people. But what if universities became world experts in understanding how to take innovation and point it in the direction of greater social good. That was, in a way, the kind of ambition, the, the, the dream that I think we set ourselves upon. And the reason is, if you look at urban universities across the nation, so many of them are surrounded by unacceptable levels of poverty. 
even though within the borders of the university there is extreme wealth from Yale to UPenn to right here to Georgia Tech and on and on you go across the country. There are story after story of that crazy disparity that we have. And the irony of ironies is our staff and many of our students come from the communities. And so we belong to the communities and we need to remember that in the work that we do. So the center says, okay, could we actually realign the motivational and incentive structures inside the university? Everything from the way we promote people to the way we review our staff every year to the way we design internships for our students. So that doing community engagement and equity work, so that engaging with Rahib and actually working on innovations that help her organization, can we align those structures so that you can be lauded for those works in the university? And the answer is, of course we can. We just have to decide to. And so the center is interesting because it tries to do that through three major thrusts. One is changing the organizational structure of the university gradually so that our incentives are aligned. The second one is training across the university. We need to train people to know what it means to talk equitably with community partners. How do you hold them as equals to you instead of falling into hegemonic power practices that you often get when you talk to somebody and think you know more than them? And then the third one is this idea of a community committee that Rakib is serving on which is a way for the community to express to us and drive forward the direction of innovation. So that for once, the innovation is co-directed by a community and the university working together. No small ambitions here. Clearly, the ultimate goal is to change the culture of academia itself and of Carnegie Mellon in particular as the starting point. You've built into the center of the center, if you'll forgive me, the idea that it should be community-led in much the same way that Rakib spoke about the importance of being community-led in her work. Tell us a little bit about why that structure exists. If we want to earn the respect of the community, then we have to provide room to demonstrate our respect for the community. So structurally, the way we're doing this is, is I think, pretty unique. We're taking several dozen people from the community and constituting this thing called C3, the Center Community Committee, so three Cs. And C3 includes some members of the university, a couple of staff, a couple of faculty, a couple of students, and a couple from the administration. But it's by and large comprised of the community members. And the idea is ex really exciting because the community members aren't simply executive directors of organizations like Rakib, but also residents of local neighborhoods who have strong lived experience, who have an understanding of the situations that they face, the barriers to equity that they see every day. And then we're going to give them tools so they can interrogate the question, what are the structural barriers to equity, the structural barriers to shared prosperity, that if we were to work together with funding, that we can actually do something about, that we can move the needle on these barriers. And so the exciting thing is that the community committee is going to be deciding for the amount of money we have every year, how do we launch work in specific areas where we can cause a real structural reform that helps to reduce inequity and helps to create shared prosperity. And the most exciting part of this whole thing is whenever we launch an effort like that, it's forever. And that's structurally different from anything I've seen before, because when you do equity work, you can't stop doing it. You can't stop farming because when you stop farming, you slide back into the inequities you had. You mm. create food apartheid all over again, even if you got rid of it. We're not moving on. And that, I think, gives us a chance to permanently align the values of the university with the values of the community. Rakeem, you're a busy woman. You've got a lot on your plate. 
I understand that this is being set up in the right way so that members of the committee are actually being compensated for their time and and there's an acknowledgement of the work that's involved. But still, you're a busy person and you you know what you're doing. I'm curious what value you see in this and why it was appealing to you to want to contribute to it. When I went to the docket to sign up for a flight to speak with Ella, I've seen a lot of names that I was familiar with. So it was great. Some I wasn't, but I knew these people were grassroots folks. This is where you get the work done from community members, from people who are doing this work boots on the ground. And yes, it's great to be compensated for work. I'm happy to work with universities. At times, I would shy away because they would come, pick our brains. We give them information, and then we don't hear from them no more, or leave us with promises that aren't fulfilled. But I see this as being different. It's led by not only residents, but students and activists and community leaders. And I definitely love the idea that a project can be picked by us that will have funding in perpetuity because sometimes projects aren't sustained. Ella, the the skepticism that Rakib expressed which is that, you know, we've heard this before. Have you encountered much of that skepticism as you've explained the concept for the center and how are you addressing it? I have encountered it from both sides, Grant. I remember a project years ago where some wonderful researchers from Carnegie Mellon went into into South Braddock and worked on community building there and they designed a community radio station over the course of six months. It was really exciting. And then the funding was over and they said, thank you, and they left. And I remember the last meeting because the community member said, wait, we've been meeting with you every week for six months. When do we get the actual radio station? Now that we know why we need it and you've designed it and you, you described it in such great detail. And the designer said, well, we don't have funding to make a radio station, uh, but we're gonna go write about this. And it was heartbreaking mm. from that perspective to see that with the best of intentions, both sides met, but neither one had the fluency and grammar to actually find the money to deploy that idea. They hadn't even talked about it, right? They hadn't even discussed fruition. And then on the other side, yes, I have talked to more than 120 community members, socializing them to the new Center for Shared Prosperity. And I've heard at least a dozen stories where people want to deep dive and tell me, well, I had this grant proposal idea. I took it to my friend at this department at the university, and then they actually got the grant, but then I didn't get to work on them for it. And you hear these stories, and you know that there's good intentions on all sides, but the motivations and incentives simply haven't been as aligned as they could be. Mm. And what's humbling is that when we sit down and tell people about the center and what we're doing and the organizational structure of it, I am amazed to say I have not had a single nominee who's been invited to C3 say no. People want to treat the university and the community as one team that can actually solve problems authentically together. They want to give it a chance. It's clear for me what Rakib and the members of the community committee will bring to the table in terms of their deep knowledge of the community. Your sense of what the university will bring to the table is what? The university, I've seen it transform itself since the 90s. Boy, I had to have students in the 90s and the early 2000s who came in and wanted nothing more than to go to Google and become a millionaire. They wanted to take the classes that make them possible to do that. And that worked for some of them, as I recall. Apparently, some of them did do that. <laughs> some of us yes. were left in the dust on that one. 
with pleasure. But today, students come into my office before COVID and sit down and say, literally, this is an actual phrase, I'm getting this computer science degree, Ela, but I don't want to go work at a company and help them optimize ad revenue and get wealthy. How can I help my community out? This is what's happening in post-millennial generations of students. There is a hunger for them to look at the world that they see full of injustice and ask the question, how do I make it more just? And the same holds of the professors. The newest assistant professors that I have coming in, they want to know how they can do meaningful work from day one and get credit for it for their tenure case. What the university brings is this hunger to innovate with community and for community. And you're looking initially to do this, obviously, at the community level in a range of areas, including social challenges, economic and environmental health challenges, all of which are seriously in play in this community, much as they are in other communities around the country. Rakib, I'm curious, given your perspective and your work, and as you hear Illa talk about this, How do you imagine that this partnership will work in the healthy food and green space in your community? I'd like to see change, not just lip service. Whenever someone starts off on a grassroots level, it's because of a condition that's right outside of their doorstep. It's food apartheid area, or it could be housing, or it can be water quality, air quality, direction for our youth. For the next up-and-coming children, maybe from Homewood or Hazelwood or the Hill District, to be able to attend Carnegie Mellon University. So I see this as an opportunity of all of us coming together in the cohort to make this permanent change in the structure of the system. I'm glad there are going to be students working there. And I can frankly say that I think in the last couple of years, Carnegie Mellon University has come a long way. This program is showing attempts of unfair and just equity for people. Last week, I lectured to a class of, um, I believe, sophomores, undergrads, sophomores and juniors. And the students had awesome questions, not just about farming, but ways that they can make a change. I love the fact that you did a lecture to students. And did you observe the same thing with the students that Illa was describing, that they have a thirst to solve real-world problems in partnership with you? Definitely, because, first of all, it was an amazing question from my presentation. If they didn't know something, they were curious. But they wanted to know how could they help. That's important. It wasn't like they were just picking my brain and then we're going to move forward. They wanted to know how they can be an advocate of social change. And what do you all need? Hands. We need hands. So... Some of them went to our website to volunteer. So it's amazing. It's very encouraging to me to hear from both of you about how young people are orienting around these problems and the role that they want to play. Ila Rakib mentioned air and water quality alongside food security as issues, and I know that they're on your work plan for the center as areas of potential focus. You've done incredible work through your current role as the founder and head of Create Lab at Carnegie Mellon University, where where you have worked on applying the use of data and the use of technology to social problem solving. Can you talk a little bit about how you see 
that work extending into the work of the Center for Shared Prosperity around these other environmental challenges? You know, one of the interesting aspects of environmental challenges that we have to keep in mind, especially if we think even uh, about children, is that poor air quality, poor water quality, poor nutrition have this long tail of influence on the well-being of a child, on their ability to learn in school, on their social-emotional development, on their ability to have high attendance rates and therefore qualify for things like the Pittsburgh Promise someday. So the injustice that stems from that is lifelong. And the challenge then becomes the triage that we need to do to say we have limited resources, but long-term resources. When we look at that life of that child, when we look at the prosperity that we wish upon them, what are these barriers that we can most influence early? And what's exciting about the Center for Shared Prosperity is as we find solutions that answer that question, we can unleash them in scale. Let's say we determine that if we take children in Homewood who have high exacerbations of asthma, and if we deep dive and notice that this really affects their learning and their social emotional development, suppose we just buy air filters for 20,000 children and put it in their homes. We could do that. We could put 20,000 air filters in people's homes. Then we've also done an experiment that's never been done, which is to see how over the course of a couple of years that impacts those children's well-being, their ability to sleep, their ability to go to school, their attendance rates. And if you can make a real difference there, then you go to UPMC and Blue Cross Blue Shield and all the insurance companies and show them that they actually save money by buying air filters for a child who has asthma because they decrease the emergency room visits so much that it pays for the air filter many times over. And if you do that, now you can scale that locally and eventually nationally. So in a way, C3 gives us the insights with lived experience to understand where to triage, where to apply our resources and try out solutions that we think can make a difference. But it also gives us the gravitas and the power to then turn to corporate entities like UPMC, and tell the story of change that we've caused and leverage that into larger and larger change. You're pointing to something that I I profoundly believe, which is that when we fully account for the costs of various decisions, doing the right thing, be it providing air filters or access to food security like Rakib is doing, actually turns out to be beneficial from a business perspective as well. And if the full costs of some of the bad choices we're making today were actually incurred by those playing a role in them, we might actually see a different set of decisions. And in a way, what you're doing is saying that part of your work will be designed to drive different thinking about how socially responsible decision-making can help a business model. That's exactly right. We've made public costs and made private profit for too many years without justly exposing the true costs. And if you expose the true costs, I think you're exactly right. Uh, We can actually align the values of the corporate world with the values of the residents of our communities. A city commission issued a 94-page study on inequality in Pittsburgh. And as Money Editor John Delano reports, for many, the city's livability depends on race. The mayor's Gender Equity Commission issued its first of four reports. This one on Pittsburgh's inequality across gender and race. We have rates within our black community that are third world when it comes to infant mortality. Pittsburgh's black women are more likely to be unemployed and live in poverty than black women in other cities. 
in addition to environmental health issues, other focus areas of the center will include work in the social and economic areas. And those two areas are important in every city, but especially critical in Pittsburgh, which often makes the top echelon of the national quote-unquote most livable cities <laughs> lists, while also topping lists of cities where life is the most challenging black for black women. families and black folks, and especially black women. Uh, Rakib, as, as you think about this, are these inequities on your radar and the community planning process radar as the Center for Shared Prosperity takes shape? Of course, I think it's paramount, especially like you said, Grant, where we've been hearing for years, this is the most livable city. And we're like, for what? And we're not just complaining. This is true trauma that we have experienced. I shouldn't have to debate if I want to raise my children here or my adult child moves to another city so he can get a better job because it's not going to happen here in Pittsburgh for him, even with his degree. But as a black woman, it is challenging. I hope this will hit our radar. No one can debate it anymore. Study after study, it's disturbing year after year that black women in Pittsburgh do worse than any other city in this nation. Why is that? Why is it that we have one of the highest number of infant mortality rates in the country for black women? That's the issue. So yes, I would love to work on these issues, especially the disparity of black people compared to other cities or here in this city for black women. Anila, what Rakib is describing is a set of challenges and inequities that run deep, obviously, in our society, but also in the socioeconomics of this town. And they didn't happen overnight. They formed over decades and centuries and I'd just love to hear you reflect on what you just heard from Rakib about how you hope the center will help to break the impasse on those issues. You know, what really strikes me, if we look at health injustice, if we look at lack of access to capital, nationally, we already have a society in which black women and people of color are, are treated much, much, much worsely on these metrics than whites. And then in Pittsburgh, we're dead last. Compared to that national average, it's already bad. One of the issues that I think is just critical to this is the concept of access to capital. Because we live in a city where access to capital isn't for persons of color. It's not just that rental prices in vulnerable communities are increasing at a more rapid rate than in prosperous communities. It's not just that mortgage denials are higher for black Pittsburghers with decent FICA scores than white Pittsburghers. But you take those two cross them with historically redlined communities. And then you look at the number of black students who are able to go to Carnegie Mellon or Pitt or Duquesne and get an advanced degree, which would even set them up to have a chance at access to capital were that a more just process. So every step of the way, we have injustice introduced into the formula. And the challenge for the center is gonna be if you can make a conceptual model of this and see all the places where injustice injects itself today, which are the ones that we can start repairing now that can have consequences that are beneficial next year, but also next decade. Where are the injustices that we can move? And how do we do that in a, in a way that can impact the entire system of injustice? Rakib, you've described yourself as the mother of six phenomenal kids. I think that's right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. How do you carry them and your hopes for them into the conversations that Illa is talking about? As parents, we teach our children all my children are social justice advocates because so was I growing up. It was like required. 
in our household. I was a Girl Scout, so I had to do all these things, right? And we love teaching other children what we do. Back in the day with Mama Africa's Green Scouts, we weren't just teaching the youth. It was required that their families come. And we didn't just teach gardening and farming. We taught community responsibility and community development to them as well. Because we can holler all day about what should be done, but it's really up to us to do it. So I teach my children these things as well. My children teach me. I love living in the city. I love mm-hmm. the work I do. I enjoy loving service. I really do. It's important that we take sovereignty into our own hands. We enjoy help, but I'm glad to see students learning not to come in and save us. You can help, but it's not your job to save us because that happens far too often. Right. We'll have them come in and start telling us how to farm and whatnot. We're like, hey, we got this. We got like over 60 years experience. But I'm glad to see this new era of folks coming in you know, who are learning to help. And thank you for saying that, because I think this is one of the one of the greatest lessons of that I've learned over the years in this work, that this is about working together in partnership. It is not about coming in and saving anyone, that that is actually the use of the word sovereignty that you keep repeating, Rakib, is I love that idea because it is you know, it is this notion of people being in charge of their own destiny. It's the only way change happens in a sustainable fashion. I forgot to ask you along the way about Mama Africa's Green Scouts, and I, I just love the idea of this. Would you would you just say a little bit about what it um, what the idea was and why you started it? I live in the Lower Hill District uptown, and it was a community garden there. Yeah. And most of the people there were, weren't Black, only one Black person. So I went and asked her, hey, can we have a bed to teach our children how to grow food? And she was like, sure. And they would help out. And we go out there every week and once a month. And that, we started that April of 2011. The next year, children in the community wanted to help. Us. And then 2013, folks who didn't have children wanted to learn to grow food. Mama Africa, Green Scouts, is still active. My work with Buzz, we're all just one, right? We're all one big happy family, for real. We work with so many other Black partners who collaborate together who are members. So basically, that's Mama Africa's Green Scouts. The mission is to teach Black children and their families to play with dirt. And you were a Girl Scout yourself? I was. So my father was raised during the Depression, so he dealt with food trauma, and he built a pantry to our kitchen and was stock up on food. I'm like 11, going to food drive. And I'm piling cans from this pantry, right? He said, what are you doing? And my mom said, tell your dad what you're doing. I said, I'm getting food for the poor people, Pop. He said, could you tell her we're poor? I mean, you weren't (laughs) working poor. I had a lot more than, you know, some of my neighbors and people I grew up with. So Girl Scouts was a big help in me learning to help others. You know, my, my parents installed that in me. That's such a great image and story. And at a moment when we're hopefully coming out of COVID and all that we've experienced over the past year, which has been an extraordinary series of traumas and challenges, and yet also hopefulness, I'm curious what you both think we can be. I hope that we can be the pioneers for justice together. After this past year, We can be resilient and resourceful. 
Around the world, a relative handful of major research institutions, Carnegie Mellon among them, are literally inventing the future with significant global benefits and impacts. But too rarely are local communities and complex social needs the real beneficiary or even the focus of the knowledge, creativity, and wealth creation flowing from these extraordinary engines of innovation. We wanted to see in Pittsburgh if this community could reinvent that paradigm and Carnegie Mellon, with its long history of tackling real-world problems, has risen to the challenge. This center will put the innovation talents of one of the world's best universities in service to the community and at the same time harness the insights of community on behalf of better innovation. We also hope it will send a signal to peer institutions nationally and globally that they too have a role to play in making sure that the prosperity they help create is shared more broadly and more equitably than it is today. Worsening inequality and social inequity are not inevitable byproducts of a period in our history of profound innovation. They are only failures of intention and imagination.